And uh, this is his title, Regulation, Expe Inspection and Extreme Risk, The History Behind the Grenfell Tower Tragedy. Uh, this, is the, this is Shane Ewan. He's a reader in urban history. He's the author of a very recent uh, policy paper on our website. Um, please do, by all means, go and look at it. You can see the www.historyandpolicy.org is where you can go and find all of, the, all of our uh, policy papers. So he, he has produced a very recent one, um, uh, which will, some of the, what you're going to hear about is discussed there. And he was the author in 2010 of a major monograph on um, the whole history of the British Fire Service across two centuries, really, 1800 to 1978. So the Grenfell Tower fire may have been extinguished, but it continues to burn in other ways. The tower stands as a visible and traumatic reminder to residents and survivors of the events of that fateful night, whilst the independent inquiry and the subsequent media attention it garners forces the survivors to relive the horrors every day in their campaign for justice. Firefighters and survivors alike are being treated for PTSD, while me medical professionals have warned, even just this week, of the long-term health risks posed to emergency workers and survivors from having been exposed to toxic fumes and asbestos, and this week to residues in the ground around the, for one square, one mile distance from, from the, the site. Given that the pathological effects of the fire are likely to continue to be felt for the next few decades or more, and that the fire will continue to loom large in our cultural imagination and political discourse, it is fair to argue that Grenfell Tower is a slow disaster. It is a slow disaster in other ways too. Disasters aren't bolts from the blue that simply happen, although the media is obviously interested in reporting disasters like Grenfell for their sensational visibility and tends to create this impression. Rather, disasters are complex events, the product of long incubation periods during which an accumulation of faults, errors and minor failures build up over an extended period of time owing to erroneous assumptions, misinformation or misunderstandings within or between organisations. They can even take decades to occur the cumulative effect of decisions taken for economic, social and political reasons. Disasters occur gradually over time, unravelling in slow motion, and as such they lend themselves to historical scrutiny in order to trace the long-term as well as the short-term factors that led to the more explosive, in some cases literally, and spectacular events that we associate as the disaster playing out in front of our eyes. It is only the final outcome of deeper lying forces and causes. Whereas much has been written and said about the short-term triggers of the Grenfell fire, not least the failed refurbishment programme of 2012-16 to and the management of the tower by the Kensington and Chelsea Tenants Management Organisation, as well as the local borough council, little has been reported on the longer-term political and cultural factors that I think, Shane thinks, have contributed to, to the inevitability of a fire such as the one that happened in June 2017. 
Such an historically informed focus on the long-term patterns of vulnerability illuminates the new nature of the state's lax attitude towards fire safety re reform when compared to the quite recent past. This brings into sharper focus the criticisms of the government's deregulation agenda and the ill-judged burning of red tape campaign of the past decade. The history of building control, enforcement and fire safety has generally been reactive rather than proactive. Certainly in the post-war period and I've listed here an incomplete list of acts and regulations that were passed by Parliament in the wake of high-profile fires involving multiple fatalities in premises such as factories, nightclubs, department stores, chemical grounds, chemical plants and football grounds. These acts are generally known as <laughs> tombstone leg legislation and they have tended to deal with risks on a sectoral basis, prescribing what were considered to be acceptable fire safety measures, always after the Act. The Acts all recognise that inspection, certification and enforcement of minimum safety standards by local fire authorities was integral to this prescriptive approach. To take two examples depicted here, a large fire at Eastwood Mills in Keighley, West Yorkshire in 1956, depicted in that newspaper um, extract in the top, uh, top right, where blocked fire exits slowed down evacuation and led to the deaths of eight female employees. There was at that time no legal obligation to conduct safety inspection, inspections of smaller industrial premises. We saw before how it's this these smaller premises that really are the big problem um, because of the workload. The subsequent Factory Act passed in 1959 and consolidated two years later in a follow-up Factory Acts of 1961 made the provision and signposting of fire exits, alarms and firefighting equipment compulsory in all factories and transferred the powers of inspection and enforcement to local fire authorities who were considered more knowledgeable about fire safety than the factories inspectorate based in London, which is where this responsibility had previously lain. So this is finally encouraging the government to say, let's put this in the hands of the actual experts. We have fire, fire, fire brigades all over the country. Um, let's get them to do this. Employers could also be prosecuted for breaching the legislation and that was the case following the deaths of 22 employees at a fire in a Glasgow furniture upholstery factory uh, several years later in 1968 after it was found that exit doors were padlocked on both sides. Secondly, perhaps the most significant of these for domestic safety, for domestic fire safety, were the upholstered furniture regulations passed in 1980 in response to the Woolworths fire in Manchester one year earlier in 1979, producing 10 dead and 47 injured, including six firefighters. And that's the bottom image that you're seeing. This was caused by an electrical cable igniting furniture made of flammable polyurethane foam which gave off poisonous gases and burned ferociously. 
This led to improved standards of testing and warning against flammable furniture, which obviously had a knock-on effect for safety within the home. What we can take from this is that the state has historically been much more likely to regulate workplace, stores and places of public amusement and entertainment than homes, but that this has only ever been after the expense of major loss of life. The state has preferred to leave the regulation of fire safety within the home to the individual homeowner, especially with the provision of planned escape routes and fire extinguishing equipment. There has, however, been an emphasis on improved standards in multi-storey housing, where the risk of multiple fatalities is obviously greater than in single occupancy homes. This emphasis has centred on the three E's of engineering, education and, when required, enforcement. Many of the improvements to building design and maintenance dated from the mid-20th century during a building boom in Britain, especially with high-rise construction. The provision of good quality healthy housing for communities was considered the bedrock of the welfare state and safety was integral to this. Engineering, let's look at the first E. The first tests for combustibility were published in a British standard in 1932 and have gone on to be revised over the decades. Fire grading of materials, that is, that is its susceptibility to burning, was introduced from 1948 and compartmentation, that is the subdivision of a building by fire resisting walls floor or floors for the purpose of limiting fire spread within the building. That was introduced as a national requirement in 1965, albeit that compartmentation in fact already existed in many local building bylaws before then. Means of escape in case of fire were introduced for flats from 1936 in London and nationwide in 1948. Building controls were effectively nationalised in 1965 with the publication of the first set of building reg regulations following the 1961 Public Health Act and its creation of a Building Regulations Advisory Committee BRAC, often seen, Building Regulations Advisory Committee which applied everywhere with the exception of London. These were framed on a basis called deemed to satisfy, these regulations, deemed to satisfy, through which local authority bin building control officers were responsible for, for signing off on a building only after they were satisfied that the buildings had incorporated appropriate measures to satisfy the regulations. So it's local, local authority officers who are responsible and they have um, criteria to, to um, examine. Secondly, we turn to education. Education was also realised to be important. Fire prevention became a statutory responsibility of local fire brigades in 1947 and led to local as well as national campaigns targeting specific hazards as well as general raising of public awareness of fire safety. In the event of a fire in multi-storey housing, the advice to stay put, well, the infamous advice to stay put, was first published in a British standard in 1962 and quickly adopted by fire brigades across the country during an era of extensive high-rise council housing development. 
The principle behind this idea was that by staying put, firefighters would have freer access to those residents most in danger and could tackle the flames without interruption. This is still the official advice today and has, of course, come in for criticism in the wake of the Grenfell tire, Tower. As one survivor put it, one Grenfell survivor put it in his testimony to the Inter Independent Inquiry recently, to stay put felt like a trap, so he chose to make a prompt exit from the building. Finally, local fire brigades were themselves developing powers of enforcement over building control even before the passing of, in 1971, the Fire Precautions Act. At the bottom there. Enforcement was through inspection, certification and the issuing of closure notices. The Fire Precautions Act first applied to hotels and boarding houses and was another reactive piece of legislation to a fatal hotel fire in Saffron Walden at Christmas 1969, which killed 11 guests. But it was also designed to be flexible and could be applied to other premises by the Home Secretary. So that's an echo there of what Jill was talking about. When you finally get an effective piece of legislation, it means the Home Secretary can keep up to date um, because they have the powers in the, in the legislation. Flats were regarded as a lower priority risk to be dealt with when the circumstances allowed it. This was partly achieved through the 1980 Housing Act, which empowered local authorities to oblige housing providers to install means of escape in case of fire in houses of multiple occupation. Although it's to be noticed that housing providers were often at this time still in 1980, the local authorities themselves. But this was all about to change with the Thatcher government's right to buy policy and the shift in control to housing associations in the mid to late 1980s. Of course, there would always be lessons to be learned from mistakes made at particular estates. Most famous was the 1968 Ronan Point disaster in Canning Town, East London, involving a 22-storey tower block severely damaged two months after it opened. Construction faults led to a gas explosion caused by an elderly resident making her morning cup of tea, which blew out load-bearing walls, leading to the progressive collapse of the southeast corner of the building, killing four residents and injuring 17. You can see the, that whole section has fallen away. Much as we have seen with Grenfell, Ronan, Ronan Point led to local authorities conducting surveys of the safety of their existing building stock, as well as a public inquiry which recommended changes to building regulations to, soften lo to stre strengthen load-bearing in tall buildings and avoid progressive collapse. As the second illustration shows, we also see the beginning of a pub public discourse questioning the safety of flats in a national culture that increasingly prioritised low-rise home ownership. So that's why flats are not safe as houses, a Sunday Times inquiry by Tony Geraghty, Nicholas Taylor and Brian Silcock um, following the Ronan Point um, row. The building regulations were subsequently revised in 1971, introducing a new section on structural stability, 
which included new rules for controlling the design of buildings of over five storeys to give protection against accidents such as fire and explosion. And it was under these regulations that Grenfell Tower was built as phase one of the Lancaster West redevelopment project by Kensington and Chelsea Borough Council between 1972 and 1974. And it's the existence of those regulations which explains why the building structure survived the fire and is still standing today as a daily reminder of the horror. When did regulation and red tape, the so-called health and safety gone mad, culture become a target for governments? Well, a 1984 command paper called Lifting the Burden, authorised by Lord Scissors, David Young, the minister who could always solve Mrs Thatcher's problems for her, the Conservative minister without portfolio, responded to Margaret Thatcher's brief to reduce the burden of red tape on small firms. Michael Heseltine, the Minister of Environment, advocated the re replacement of deemed to satisfy regulations, the ones we met a few minutes ago, re replacement of deemed to satisfy with functional regulations, that's a quote, and the introduction of competition in building control and certification in order to roll back the state, maximise self-regulation, and lift the burden on private enterprise by removing prescriptive regulations. You can imagine what competition between <laughs> regulatory bodies means. It means to try and find the one that's cheapest for you. In 1985, a performance-based system was introduced which adopted the broad outcomes that buildings should achieve without prescribing how industry should meet these standards except means of escape from fire, which were made mandatory in council high-rising council high-rise housing in 1981 and merged with the national building regulations in 1985. All of this bonfire of regulations and movement towards functional regulations reduced the length of the published regulations on building control from 310 pages to 24 pages. The regulations had literally been burned. These new regulations were supported by 12 booklets of guidance for architects, surveyors and builders, which were known as approved documents. Approved document B was for fire safety and was designed to be for guidance rather than prescription. You've got approved document B there at the bottom on the right. Approved document B went through various revisions throughout the 1990s and 2000s. The relevant changes introduced greater choice and flexibility for manufacturers in the testing procedures required to establish the safety of their products and in the use of combustible materials in external insulation and cladding systems. This reflected a view from within government that because of falling numbers of fatal fires in the country, the regulations could be justifiably watered down and combustible materials allowed in construction under certain conditions. What we see then is a shift away from the Fire Prevention Act since 1971 
and its model of periodic, inspe periodic inspection and certification towards a culture of self-compliance through risk assessment in order, as New Labour's Better Regulation Task Force set up in 1997 described it, to, quote, reduce unnecessary regulatory and administrative burdens. So New Labour also continued the trend begun uh, earlier in a, under a different government. Fire service powers were rolled back, resources cut. It could well be said that the service was a victim of its own success. The success in prevention of major incidents was now being seen as a reason to justify saving costs, a re reason to justify saving costs and hassle on such a cumbersome system, a view which contained but did not make explicit the rather irresponsible assumption that the disasters of the past couldn't possibly return now. This sees a quite dramatic shift in responsibility for fire safety from the state to the individual. What became known in the literature as, quote-unquote, the responsible person, as designated under the 2005 Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order, which uh, uh, repealed the 1971 Act and introduced a single fire safety regime that applied to all workplaces and non-domestic premises. This culture of anti-red tapism gathered momentum at the turn of the current de decade with the election of the coalition government. Prime Minister David Cameron promised a bonfire of red tape over building regulations in 2011. He got his bonfire. The Cabinet Office's Cutting Red Tape initiative, chaired by Vince Cable, introduced the one-in, one-out rule on all regulations. This was amended to one-in, two-out in 2008, in 2013, and one-in, three-out in 2016 by the then Business Secretary Sajid Javid, proving his testosterone, no doubt. He is now the who is now the Home Secretary, with overall responsibility for the fire service. Cladding was first recognised as a potential risk to the structural integrity of high-rise buildings in a 1979 research paper published by the Department of Environment's Building, Building Research Establishment, often termed the BRE. Department of Environment's Building Research Establishment, which was then a government body in 1979, but it was privatised in 1997. The paper warns against alterations to the original basic design concept which can lower fire precaution standards and cites, the 1979 paper, it cites overseas incidents of the problem of external fire spread via windows. It concluded that, as with all types of building, the problems of fire in high-rise situations not only depend upon good design and construction, but perhaps to a greater extent on good management. The BRE, the Building Research Establishment, subsequently cited the failure to install fire barriers or stoppers on the external walls of multi-storey buildings fitted with thermoplastic cladding in a manual of housing defects published in 1984. However, the warnings were not heeded as demonstrated by two tower block fires at the turn of the century. Firstly, 1999, Garnock Court Tower Block 
fire in Irvine in Scotland, one dead, five injured, including a 15-month-old baby. The fire spread via composite window panels across nine floors of the 14-storey building and reached the top in 10 minutes. One firefighter at the incident commented that there were parts of the cladding dropping onto the fire appliance that could not be moved as it was supplying the firefighters with water. This led to an inquiry by the Environment, Transport and Regional Affairs Select Committee, which amongst other recommendations urged that, quote, we do not believe that it should take a serious fire in which many people are, are killed before all reasonable steps are taken towards minimising the risks. 1999. This prompted a review of approved document B and the issuing of revised regulations, including the adoption of the Building Research Establishment's new laboratory fire test as British Standard BS 8414 issued in the revised regulations in 1999 and became effective in 2000. This is still used in modified form today. In this case, however, the, the use of the phrase full-scale fire test data in standard BS 8414, the phrase full-scale fire test data, that phrase had by 2006 been widely interpreted to allow for the use of desktop studies, in other words, computer simulated modeling of risks proposed by materials, rather than going to the expense of hiring the available facilities of the BRE. The BRE had facilities in which real tests could be performed, but uh, the looseness of that phrase, full-scale fire test data, had become, come to be interpreted in the industry as meaning that you could do uh, modeling exercises and you'd done your job. Ultimately then, in a political era devoted to a bonfire of red tape, the net effect of the official responses to the Garnock Court fire was to contribute to a deterioration in fire safety standards. Secondly, the subsequent Lacanal House fire in 2009 was more deadly than Garnock Court, with a toll of six dead, including three young children. So this is ten years later in 2009, and still a long time before um, Grenfell Tower. The fire was caused by an electrical fault with a TV set which burnt through the cladding panel on the outside of the building and quickly engulfed the building. The window panels, in this case, didn't even meet class zero standard and were not of, were not of limited combustibility, combustibility standard. However, Without the red tape and expense of a properly integrated and strict inspectorial and regulatory system, which had existed, there had been no responsible agency to challenge the use of these window panels. The eventual legal finding in 2017, uh, so that's eight years later, was that Southwark Council had failed to exercise oversight. It was fined a total of £570,000. Um, and uh, that, was the, that was all that we got from that one. Coroner Francis Kirkham recommended the government, review appro the government should review approved document B, which she described as, quote, a most difficult document to use in 2013. The review has never taken place. 
She also recommended retrofitting sprinklers to the community's secretary at the time, Eric Pickles, who declared this to be a matter for housing providers to respond to rather than the government, which was, of course, the philosophy by this time that um, government was to keep itself out of the uh, marketplace and to minimise red tape. So, the historical review of development since 1945 has shown that the political popularity of rolling back of the state through deregulation, which commenced in the 1980s, but has progressively continued unabated under both Conservative and Labour governments and then Conservative again ever since, has increasingly reduced government responsibility for the public safety of buildings and homes and relied ever more on the compliance by the building companies with a range of quite loosely phrased forms of guidance and even on the individual citizen, the responsible person, while nevertheless commanding them to stay put when their tower block is going up in flames. We are currently in a situation where it is entirely legal for a manufacturer of, manufacturer of cladding to run their own tests, which can be a computer simulation, which don't have to consider fully the ways that the different components work together in a fire situation. For instance, the composite panels and the surrounding windows, or even small things like the type and thickness of the adhesive used. Class zero testing refers to the surface spread of flame of a material only. So, if a firm adds fire retardant chemicals, or as in Grenfell, covers the combustible plastic cladding with an aluminium sheet, it can secure class zero status and is therefore legal. Astonishing, really. This kind of self-compliance may be cheaper for the taxpayer, but it comes at a much higher social cost, as Grenfell has tragically demonstrated. The effects of the Grenfell fire continue to play out as these recent, B as the, the recent, these recent BBC headlines up here show post-traumatic stress disorder of emergency service workers as well as families and smoke damage screening for cancer and asbestos poisoning and, as I said earlier, ground earth problems. Okay, and that's the end of Shane's paper. So, yes, you, you can...